This sermon was recorded at the Midtown Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. Good morning. Today's scripture reading comes from the book of 2 Peter, chapter 1. That can be found on page 1018 in the Bibles in the pew backs in front of you. 2 Peter, chapter 1. If you're able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's word? Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Amen. Hey, before I pray this morning, I want to uh, just give you a quick heads up. We're starting our time in Second Peter this morning, and we'll be here for about seven weeks, uh, moving through pretty quickly the epistle of Second Peter. Uh, may not be one that you're super familiar with, but I think is one of real importance to us in our moment. And then that'll bring us right up into July. And in July, we uh, take a, a time out of our normal rhythm of, of how we're preaching, and we'll be in the Psalms through the month of July. And then uh, that'll bring us into the fall. And we'll talk more about where we're going in the fall uh, in the days to come. But so for the next seven weeks, we'll be, we'll be moving through uh, the epistle of Second Peter together. Let me uh, pray for us and then we'll jump right in. God, we thank you for your word. I ask this morning as we approach your throne because of the mighty, grace made known to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. God, I ask that you would come and meet with us. God, would you stir up our affections? Would you stir up our desires for you? God, would you remind us of who we are in Christ? Remind us of the truth. Remind us of all that you have done. God, would you make us stable and steadfast? in the knowledge of God and in the grace of Christ. God, would you give a spirit of wisdom and revelation upon your word, both in the speaking of it and in the hearing of it? Would you direct our hearts into your love and into your steadfastness? We ask in Jesus' name and for his glory, amen. Okay, so we're just gonna jump right in. So uh, if you read the uh, epistle of Second Peter, as you read through it, there's not actually a lot that you can extract from it. Uh, little is kind of known about the recipients of the letter and the context into which it's written. Uh, you know, when, when was it written? There's a lot of scholarly debate. There's a lot of scholarly debate about actually who wrote it. Um, most of the church history has believed that it is the guy that says it, who he is right here, Simon Peter, the apostle of Jesus. But recently there's been a lot of debate as to who wrote this as well. And I don't really want to get into that. I, I, I'm of the accord with the, most of church history that this is genuinely a letter of the apostle Peter on his uh, deathbed writing to strengthen the churches uh, that he has relationship with. Uh, but throughout church history, it's understood as the second letter that's been written to, uh, written by the Apostle Peter through, to these churches throughout the Mediterranean, right? Uh, verse one, verse one, we heard Simeon Peter, the writer of this, the Apostle of Jesus, the servant of Jesus. 
he, he claims himself as the writer. If you look at uh, chapter 3, verse 1, he makes it very clear that this is the second letter that I'm writing to you, right? So we can go back to the first letter of Peter to see who are the people that he wrote to. And we see that in 1 Peter 1. I have that there for you on the notes. He wrote to the elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, right? So it's this scattered uh, people of God, these churches throughout the Mediterranean that Peter has relationship with. And he's writing once again to them to edify them and strengthen them and predominantly to stir them up in the truth that they might stay firm in obedience to Jesus Christ and stay connected to the foundation that is Christ Jesus. Although the the letter is really short in its length, I actually think it's really important for the church of Jesus as we seek to understand how the church is called to stand firm against the waves of false teaching that will come against it as we wait for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I don't know if you're familiar with this or not, but in Matthew chapter 24, uh, which is Jesus's sermon outlining what are the times between when he ascends to the Father and the time he comes again, what's gonna mark the nature of that age, right? And one of the predominant realities that he invites us to see is that age is going to be marked by deception coming against the people of God. Right at the very beginning, he says, watch out. Don't let anybody lead you astray from the true and pure teaching that I've given you. That's, that's the primary thing that he begins this whole exhortation with as he marks what's the age between his comings going to be like. So we see throughout the New Testament that one of the predominant temptations and testings that the people of God are always having to face is false teaching. And 2 Peter is oriented specifically to strengthen the church, hold the church uh, in in its steadfast position of unity with the foundation of Christ in the face of these waves of false teaching. Look at letter C. It's clear from the scripture and all of history bears witness to this. The last 2000 years of the church's history show that Satan seeks to separate the church from her one true foundation, right? We, we, we understand that Satan has been cast out of heaven and his rage is great against the people of God. You could go read about that in Revelation chapter 12, but the rage of Satan against the people of God is great and he is seeking to separate the church from the one true foundation, which is Christ Jesus. And many throughout the church, uh, church history have seen that there's two common means that he uses to assail the people of God. Number one is he uses the mechanism of persecution. He comes against the people of God through physical persecution or opposition. This means that sa- through this means Satan incites fear in believers that leads them to fall away from walking with him in faith and obedience, right? We see this throughout church history. There are times and there are places, there are places in the world right now where the scheme of the devil is against the people of God in the realm of physical persecution. And it's an attempt to uh, tear away the people of God from their faithful uniting to the foundation of Christ Jesus. It's designed to cause fear and, and uh, to cause a falling away, so to speak. What's kind of fun, this is a total side note, if you want to look at the two letters of Peter, First Peter is written into this situation, right? So if you go read First Peter, these Christians are, right, are, are walking through a time of trial and opposition. They're being reviled and opposed and oppressed. And the, uh, the apostle writes the first letter of First Peter to the church to strengthen them against the onslaught of persecution. The second form we see throughout history and in the New Testament is that the form of deception. The other common means that's used is to bring deception through false teachers among the church. 
specifically in relation to the person of who Jesus is and what it means to obey him. Toward this end, Satan uses false teachers who seek to distort or pervert the pure doctrine of Christ in order to lead people astray, right? So he's, he's designing schemes to infiltrate the thinking and the belief of the church that leads to deception that there might be falling away, right? So we see these two forms at play. Letter D, the church addressed in 2 Peter was experiencing the demonic onslaught of false teaching in their midst. Peter devotes the entirety of chapter two, outlining the nature of these false, false teachers, what they teach, and then the results of their teaching, right? So he wants to highlight for them, hey, these are the people in your midst who are teaching things that are outside of the pure and true and whole doctrine of the Christian faith. He wants to show what it is they're teaching, and then he wants to show that there are real implications and results that happen from that, right? Because what we believe and what we think has real and profound uh, uh, outworking in actions and behaviors, and he's wanting to highlight each of these. The whole of chapter two is devoted to false teaching. Letter E, similarly, I believe we find ourselves in a cultural moment, and I mean particularly the Western church, right? There are churches in the world that are experiencing the first uh, front of the devil's rage against it, but we aren't experiencing physical persecution, right? We are experiencing a moment of heightened deception in the, in the West, uh, we're experiencing the reality of false teaching, threatening to separate the church from the true and firm foundation of Jesus. You just have to watch it, right? Like if you, if you open your eyes and look around, I think we're witnessing a pretty massive turning or falling away, you could say, in our contemporary moment. As people in the church are following ways of deconstruction, abandoning their faith in Jesus, right? The currents of false teaching right now are sweeping away large portions of believers and large portions of Jesus's church, right? People that claim to be stewards of the message of Jesus's gospel, his body. And we cannot back away from this. Like, we, we live in a moment where we cannot shy away from this reality. Like, we can't be quiet about it. We have to talk about it. We have to bring it into the light because there's too much at stake, right? This isn't, this isn't uh, it's not games. This really matters that we hold fast here. And what, what it looks like in the moment, we'll, we'll spend a lot of time here in the weeks to come, but one of, the, one of the stripes of what is hitting the church, it doesn't look just like it did in Peter's day. Uh, there is this massive wave that is beginning to tie up orthodox views of, Christian, of Christianity or the church. They're derided, right? Even among people who claim to follow Jesus. They're mocked. They're called archaic, oppressive, abusive is a pretty common word in the modern linguistic category of how we understand it. They're sneered at. Now, this is designed, I just want you to be aware of this. This is designed to make believers afraid afraid to hold fast, afraid to stand firm in what we believe, to stand firm on the truth of God's word, to cower back, to lose our faithful witness to what God has declared is true, and to speak it with boldness 
Compassion, yes, but with courage. It is designed for that purpose. And we find ourselves in that, in that moment. So because of this, I think the words of Second Peter are really relevant to us in this moment. I think this little book has a world of biblical truth to stitch our hearts up in like confident love before God that we need to hear. Again, although the content of the false teaching is different, understanding how the apostles sought to strengthen the church in the face of such deception is really important as we seek to grow in maturity. So how does Peter do this? I'm gonna give you just a quick outline and then we're gonna dive into these first four verses. Here's, here's how Peter does this, right? There's these false teachers coming into the church. They're sowing the seeds of deception among the church. And they are, they're, they're literally uh, causing people to be tempted to fall away from true belief. And it's subtle, it's very appealing, it seems really natural, right? Like it's like the water we swim in and we can't even tell that that's deceptive. This is how it's happening. And what does Peter do? I think this is gonna be really illustrative for us. The first thing Peter does is he reminds the believers who they are in Jesus. The first thing he does, he doesn't go straight to the false teachers. He doesn't go and say, hey, watch out for these doctrines. Watch out for these things. Watch out for these truths. Hey, get these people out of your midst. He begins to speak directly to them and says, remember who you are. Remember what's true about you. This is the most important reality in being strengthened to stand in the face of deception, is knowing who you are in Christ Jesus what is true about you, what the word of God says about you, what Jesus has done. These things are the essential piece that has to go into standing firm. That's where he starts. Then he moves to exhort them to walk in holiness in accordance with who they are in Christ. Now, I just, again, wanna highlight this. Before he even starts talking about anything that's going on, the seeds of deception or what's happening, he wants to do two things because I think stability and steadfastness to Jesus is built on two pillars. Knowledge of what God says is true and, in a, t and a partnership with him to walk in maturity. Those two realities he begins with because they're utterly essential. They're absolutely essential. Then he lays out the credibility of the true apostolic teaching. He says, hey, I just want you to know, none of us made this up. That's, that's the point of that section. This is, this is sure, this is real. Then he exposes false teachers. Then he closes the letter by exhorting them again to walk with a sober-minded view uh, of their lives in light of the reality that Jesus is coming back. That's where he ends, right? So that's, that's his plan, his blueprint. All right, go to the top of page two. Letter H, this is one final thing to say of importance. As, he, as we work our way through this letter, it's really important that you understand and we understand together that the primary strategy we find in the New Testament to combat false teaching, teaching is strengthening the church. This is really important. Peter is not really concerned with winning the culture war. I just want you guys to hear that. Peter's not actually really concerned with all that stuff that's going on out there. The world's gonna be the world. He's not all that worried about it. What he's worried about is strengthening the church. You wanna know why? Because God's strategy to establish his kingdom in the world is a vibrant, hot, on fire, alive, spirit-empowered, truth-oriented church. That is his, 
primary strategy. So Peter's not standing up there and going, can you believe down the street they're building this thing with this like a monument to consumerism and immorality and blah, 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 blah. Like he doesn't care. He's going, people of God, know this about yourselves. Know this is what God has done. Know this is who you are and strive to walk in holiness before him because if the church sets fire, guess what happens? People get plucked into the kingdom of light from the kingdom of darkness. That's what happens. So his primary strategy is to strengthen and build the church. I just want us to like have that in our hearts as we're walking through this, as we're leading through this in the, in the text. My primary strategy in, in walking through this is going to be seeking that the Lord would build us up into maturity, not trying to go, well, look at how, how the world's going to hell in a handbasket. It's like, that's what the world's supposed to do. God desires his people to be aligned with his truth, alive in our hearts, on fire for his glory. And that is what he's after. Okay, look at Roman numeral two. So where does Peter start? He starts with five truths. You could probably pick more out of this, but I'm just gonna pick five because we don't wanna be here till two o'clock. Five truths to stand firm. It's clear that Peter's purpose in the letter is to remind the church of who they are in order to stir them up toward obedience and purity of faith. I want you to see these two statements that Peter makes about his purpose. Second Peter one, he says, therefore I intend always to remind you, though you know them and are established in truth uh, that you have, I think it right as long as I'm in the body, I want to stir you up by reminding you. Now, side note, I'm gonna come over here for just a second. This is one of those, like, let me just talk to you for a minute. Okay. One of the things that I find we have a little bit of a problem with, both as a spiritual family and just kind of like the context we find ourselves in, is we like to hear a message and go, amen. And then we kind of move on. Okay. We like to agree with the truth. Yeah. Give me, give me a good truth. Give me the good truth and I'll, I'll amen it. And then we go on, we go about our day, we move on. Peter says, hey, the reason we get together and we remind ourselves of truths that we already know is to stir us up. I actually want us, when we hear the word, that we respond by going, I have to have more of that. God, would you take that and put it into me? I need more of it. I want to be conformed to it. I want to be aligned to it. God, would you make that alive in me? Would you fuel that in me? Would you set that ablaze in me? Don't let me just hear it and go amen and then walk on. Let it change me and orient me towards your glory, towards your mission. Let me be on fire. Would you stir me up in my soul that I'm like a buzz for your glory, your majesty, your uh, splendor, and then I'm sent out to be your ambassador in this world. That's what I long for in us. I, I don't want us to just go, yeah, that's a good truth. Yeah, thanks for reminding me of that. Thanks, thanks for the reminder. Yeah, we always need the reminder. We need to be reminded because our souls get sluggish. Anybody? <laughs> My soul gets sluggish, right? I lose sight. It gets cloudy. I miss my way. I get apathetic. I get, I, my zeal wanes. My desire wanes. I, I, lose, I lose sight of what really matters. And I need regular contexts to be reminded of what is true so that my soul is stirred up. Some of us are so afraid of our emotional response to something that we hold it at bay, right? Peter says, 
I want you to get stirred up. I'm doing this for the point that your soul would be a buzz, that there would be a subjective, real experience where you're charged up in your inner man and set on fire towards something. That's his goal. That's the word of God. Okay, he says the same thing again. He, he cares so much that he says it twice. Second Peter 3, 1, this is the second letter I'm writing you. Why? I want to stir up your mind. I want to stir you up by way of reminder. This is my goal. Okay, so these are five truths that we need to hold on to. Truth number one, our faith has been given to us. Look here in one verse one. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. Now, this word for obtained is a little tricky in the English because the word obtained, you could believe that it means that I went out and attained to it, right? Like I did some work and I laid hold of it. I grabbed it. The word carries the nuance of receiving a portion as an inheritance. I've obtained it, right? Somebody, somebody passed away and I obtained an inheritance. I didn't do anything for it. That was just the family I was born into. I received it as a gift. That's what this word means. This word means you did nothing to get your faith and God gave it to you as an inheritance that cannot be taken away from you just because of his mere mercy. You've obtained a faith. The beginning of this reminder is that the faith that you have, if you call upon the name of Jesus, if you stand in him, if you look at him as your only hope for life and salvation and righteousness, if you look at him, even the faith that you have was a gift that was given by the hand of God, not your own effort. You have to remember this. The starting place of the Christian life is to receive the gift of faith as a gift. When Peter speaks of faith, he means here the personal and the subjective faith in Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior of the world. It's a divine gift given to individuals that cannot produce this by their own effort, by their own intellect, by their reasoning capacity, by their own works. Nothing you could do could merit it. It was deposited to you. Again, this is like someone dying and you having a million dollars in your bank account. You did nothing. It's a inheritance given to you by the hand of God. In this phrase, Peter gives a precise summary of the whole or our side of the gospel reality. This is his way of outlining what could be called the doctrine of justification by faith. Simply stated, Peter is reminding the Christians of the most important truth they can remember with regards to their maturity, their wholeness, their steadfastness in the face of deception is to believe that they have been set right before God by no merit of their own, but in accordance with the glorious mercy of God made known in Christ, right? This is the message of the gospel. This is the message we talk about all the time, all the time, all the time. Each of us are sinful, rebellious, enemies of God in our own freedom. Because of this, we're deserving of death, judgment, and God's wrath. Yet God, in his own scandalous mercy, provided a way that we might be brought into right stand standing with him by the sacrificial death of his son. Now for any, 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 and all who believe on him by faith, you can be assured that you belong to Christ and are in the secure grip of the Father. To say that we've obtained or received the faith that is to say that our faith is evidence that we're recipients of God's grace. Hey, do you lack certainty of salvation? 
Are there places where you wonder? Here's, here's the primary evidence. When you hear the truth of the gospel, does your heart go, yes, Lord, I want that. That is evidence that you have obtained faith. Right? God doesn't mark it based on how successful you've been today or how unsuccessful you were yesterday. He evidences it based on is my heart looking to Jesus and going, I long for you. I long for that to be true. I long for your righteousness to cover my wickedness. I receive your grace as a gift. This situates the whole of our life up under the purposes of God. We're no longer our own, right? We've been granted a faith that's in accordance with Christ's own righteousness. And now we stand in the presence of God clothed in his righteousness alone, right? So Peter starts, and there's gonna be a lot of exhortation in this and a lot of watching, watch out, right? But before he does any of that, he wants us to know something. Your standing in Christ is secure. Why does that matter? Why does that really matter, right? Uh, In Peter's context, Part of the message of the false teaching was that there was this extra knowledge that you needed to get in order to be right with whatever the concept of the divine was. And Peter's going, no, no, you were made right with God by no merit of your own. You received faith. He gave it to you. And now your standing is secure. And your standing in him has to produce in you, right? This is one of those places where it's like, don't just go, amen, we got, a, we got the gospel today, check. Here's what the gospel should do in you. If you have spent, who, who even knows, five days in the bottom of a pit somewhere, in sin and brokenness, and you came to yourself and you call upon the name of the Lord, do you run into his heart as though you have received the full measure of his grace? Or do you put yourself in the penalty box? Do you like try to muster up for him enough to convince him that you're really, really sorry this time? You're gonna do better this time. If you take me back into your graces, I'll do better. God doesn't want any of that. He doesn't want a drop of that. He wants you to look at him and him alone and know that in that moment, I don't care if you just got done with four days of feeding the poor and fasting and giving your money away, studying the Bible and great prayer times or four days of like, living at the bottom of the pit somewhere. If you look to Jesus, repent of your sin and receive his grace, your standing is the same as it will be 10 billion years from now. It cannot change. You are received into the heart of God with no hindrance. You have to have that secure in you or else we will be tempted to be drawn away to other ways, right? Because we're all looking for ways to make sense of all the turmoil that's going on inside of us, right? We can't make sense of the world. We know we're anxious. We know we're, we're ashamed. We're condemned. We're all these things. If we don't have security and stability that the faith that has been granted to us gives us access to Jesus, regardless of anything we've ever done, no merit of our own, and we can stand firm and confident in that, you will find other things to try to placate those uh, feelings in you. You will. So Peter starts here. You have to know that your faith was given to you. 
This is the glorious good news of the gospel. Go to page three. Truth number two. Right now, God has given you and me everything we need to live in accordance with his ways. Look at verse three. His divine power, God's own power, God's own life, God's own animating presence has granted to us all things, say all things, everything you need that pertains to life and to godliness. Is there something God's calling us to walk in by way of obedience? God's given you the power to do it. Is there something that you have been called by God to do? God has already sustained you and supplied the power. One of the primary ways the church is strengthened in regard to standing firm against deception is growing up into maturity, right? We're going to find this in Peter uh, at other places. One of God's primary strategies to deal with deception is to mature the body up into fullness. We see that in Ephesians 4. I'll let you read that on your own. Because of this, Peter is going to spend significant time exhorting Christians to pursue a life built around actually striving towards holiness. Now, don't get caught up in that word. It doesn't mean we merit it. But there is a push toward holiness. However, it's really important to understand that Peter does not start with these exhortations. He doesn't just go, hey, hey, Christians, be holier. Hey, stop, be holier. He wants to remind you that God has already supplied for you everything you need to walk in holiness and obedience. Although there's a dynamic relationship between pursuing obedience and the animating life of God at work in us, right? These are two realities. Our, our pursuit of holiness and God's power, they're like inseparable, but you can't confuse them. Meaning that they, they are distinct realities, but they are inseparable from each other. It's important that the scripture always begins with reminding believers that God has granted to you all the power necessary to respond in the ways he commands. Philippians 2, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? It's God that's working in you. God's already at work in you. Both to want to obey him and when it comes down to it, the actual power to obey him, all of it was his power anyway. But you still need to work it out. You need to have reverence. You need to have fear. You need to uh, churn this over and seek to pursue it. But as you're doing that, just, just be aware of something. It's all God's power. Even your desire to be holy is God's power at work in you. If we're to stand firm in the face of deception, we must recognize that God has granted us by his own power the ability to walk in maturity. Grace is the animating power of God's life that empowers us toward obedience. Now here's something that I find. A lot of believers don't often remember this truth or thank God for this truth. That, they, that he's already given us a, a means to walk in obedience to his commands. This should be a regular part of our dialogue with God. Now, let me just say this. By, by way of, this is, this is just like a pastoral helpful tool, okay? God's grace does not mean that it's going to be easy. The grace of God just means you're able to do it. It might be really hard. Some people will face a temptation. It's struggle, 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 struggle. They give in to the temptation and they go, well, I didn't have any grace for it. That's a misunderstanding of grace. Grace means that you have the ability not that it's easy, right? If we're waiting for the day when it's just easy, then most likely it's never gonna happen. We will misinterpret the grace of God. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. Just write that down. Go back and read it. This is the place where Paul says, hey, there's not any temptation that's ever faced anybody that's not common to everybody. 
And he says, every temptation, God gives his people a way out. There's always a way out. But he says, he gives us a way out of escape that we might endure. Right? He doesn't say he gives you a way out and it's like a big flashing light and it's really easy and it's exciting. Like, oh yeah, that's the way out. Thank you, Lord. He says, it's actually endurance to take the way out. It's endurance. It's labor. It's war. It's difficult. But it's still grace. It's still grace. We have to recognize in our lives, wherever God calls, God provides. Okay, truth three. God has called us. Right? We've been called by God to his own glory and excellence. We can read that in verse three as well. This truth gives us stability and confidence. I want you to just hear this. This is the main point that I want you to, you to grab. is because God's call is what you could call effectual. Meaning, when God calls something, it happens. Right? It's creative. When God says, light, what happens? Light. Right? When he says, life from death, what happens? Life from death. When he says, glorified, we will be glorified. Right? Here is, here is what we see. Philippians 1. I know this. This is Paul putting the same, same reality to this. The one that began a good work will bring it to completion. When he starts it, he doesn't leave his work half done. He doesn't get 90% of the way and then forget to complete it, right? Like he doesn't reframe the walls and put up all the fixtures and then not put the light plates on or paint the room, right? He doesn't do that. When he starts a work, he brings it to completion. And you can rest assured that God has called you. Again, how do I know? Faith, desire for obedience, uh, longing to be pleasing to God. Those are all evidence that God's already at work in your soul. If God started it, he is going to complete it. Now there might be a delay between them, but it is sure. It is sure. All right, look at the top of page four. Truth four, God's given us all sorts of precious and great promises, Peter says. And here's, here's all I want to say with this. Mine the word for the promises of God. Take a, take a color of highlighter, one color or something. And every time God promises something to his people, underline it in that color. And then next time you're despairing, next time you're discouraged, next time you feel like you're faltering and failing in your life, take your Bible, open it up. I guarantee one place on that page is going to have that color on it and just begin to thank God that that is yours in Christ Jesus. God has given you all sorts of promises in Christ. They are yours, they are secure, and they are meant to be anchors and stability for you in the storms of this life. That's what this is for. All right, truth five. We are partakers of the divine nature. This is the last one. We see it here. So that through all these things, you may become partakers of the divine nature. Although there's been a lot of debate related to this phrase, right? Like how in the world can we become a partaker of the divine nature? Christians have spilt a ton of ink about this over the last 2,000 years of history. Peter's not really concerned with how this happens. He's just concerned with that it happens. This is the reality. You partake of the divine nature. What he means is this. Christians are welcomed into a life of communion with the triune God, both now by faith and in eternity in fullness. You could say it a little differently. In Christ Jesus, God communicates to you and lets you participate in all the fullness of his life. 
Now that happens in faith right now, meaning like a dark mirror that's dim and you can't see it very clearly and you have to reach for it and strain to see it. And one day it will be by sight. But the substance is the same. God is communicating to you and inviting you to participate in all the fullness of his life. And that is yours right now in Christ. Absolutely secured in him. The ultimate destiny of every believer is that we would be caught up into the eternal fellowship that's shared between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Mankind, you and me, were created in the image and likeness of God for the purpose of possessing the ability to live in communion with him. Let me just give you three ways this happens. Number one, this means that in part now and in fullness one day, we will know as we are known. Everybody wants that, right? Everybody wants to know, know deeply and be known deeply. It's like a longing of our heart. Every one of us, now in faith and in eternity by sight, will know as we are known. The second thing this means is that we get to receive the love of God and offer it back to him in return. This is John 17, Jesus's prayer. And then lastly, we see that this means that one day, in part now and in future, in fullness, we will be holy as he is holy. So what does this mean? I think Peter tells us all these things at the beginning, again, to stir up our affections, our minds, by way of truth. One of the things that we are invited to do as believers is to wage war, to lay hold of the truth by faith. This is what we see all through the scripture, right? Paul in Romans 12, what does he tell the believers to do? Don't be conformed to the torrent and the tide, the tide of the world that will suck you into its ways. How do we not do that? Renew your mind by the truth. We all are called to do this regularly. And we do this by asking God consistently to give us a spirit of revelation around these truths. So again, don't just take these truths and like check them off on a box. There are some in this room today that as we talk through some of these, you're going, gosh, I need that. I need that. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to stand. Everybody stand. Worship team, you can come on up. All right, just as we're getting settled in, and then I'll lead us in communion here in just a moment. And again, every single week, if, if as we're doing this, if the Holy Spirit is moving in your soul, or you want to lay hold of one of these truths, or you want him to reveal this to you more, we have people in the room that would love to pray with you, right? Like God loves to answer the prayers of his people. And one of the beautiful realities of the gathering of the saints is we have this opportunity to stand with one another and come into the presence of God together and ask him to do more as he ministers among us. Jesus longs to minister the realities of his kingdom life in and among us right now. Like this isn't just like a down the road kind of reality. He longs to move among us. And we, we want to posture ourselves in a way to receive that, respond to that, ask him for more of that. So we have people throughout the sanctuary. But what we're going to do before we move to communion is just take a minute and I'm going to ask the Lord to move upon our hearts. So everybody where you are, just close your eyes. If it, if it helps you, open your hands up and just say, here I am, Lord. Here I am, Lord. God, would you take your truth and write it upon my heart? And if there was like a specific one of these as we walked through, 
One of these truths that you're just like, God, I need that alive in me in a greater way. Just ask him to do it right now by his Holy Spirit. God, would you minister the free gift of grace among us even more? The security of standing in your presence. God, would you remind us of the fullness that is ours in Christ Jesus? Paul prays that we would know the fullness of God. That's, that's our inheritance. God, we want, to know, we want to know that. God, if there's people in this room who are struggling in sin and they, they feel like it's too good of news to believe that you've granted the power to stand firm there, I ask that you would fill them with faith right in this moment that you have already granted everything we need for life and godliness, everything we need. And that even in this moment, there would be like a a shifting in some of the places of even habitual sin or addiction. God, that there would be an infusion of the Holy Spirit's grace in our midst right now. Right now, Lord, would you do that? Holy Spirit, be with us. Do you just move right here? I feel like there's somebody in the room or a handful of people in the room and you don't have to identify yourself uh, that's struggled with like a habitual sin. I don't know if it's uh, addiction, pornography, um, and, and, and have, have gotten to kind of this place of like relegating, like this is, this is always going to be the case. I feel like the Lord just wants to encourage you this morning and infuse you with life, that he has provided everything you need. And so rather than giving into despair, maybe the call this morning is to repent and confess again, and then thank him that he has given you the Holy Spirit. Remember that he's already given you everything you need for life and godliness. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that you've given this to us. Would you just strengthen that in our midst right now? In Jesus' name, amen.